Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 10th, 2010. Finally heading home. Yeah, it, I gotta tell you, it's a little bit of a challenge uh, to uh, record on the road. So much so that I don't think I can really do it in the future. I'm gonna have to figure something different out. Well, that being said, though, uh, the uh, Big Tent Christianity Conference really wasn't that much of a Big Tent, but I'll give you a lowdown on it on Monday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No crazy, well, no, no, no shortage of crazy things being said, and I, I heard a few of those crazy things. I'll give you a highlights on Monday. I, I'm not in a position to really uh, give you the lowdown at the moment because I am in transit, heading back towards Central Indiana, home of my famous. Uh, Hidden pirate cave. Yeah, that's, you know, as a pirate Christian, I, you know, you, you just have to imagine that I live in a pirate cave because it just sounds so stupid when I say it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so don't miss Monday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You don't want to miss it because I will be giving a lowdown, hopefully with sound bites too, but I'll share some of the highlights of it. And, uh, you know, I, the one thing I didn't really bargain for and uh, the thing that's becoming harder and harder for me as I attend these conferences is that, um, you know, I strongly believe that uh, it's important for us to go out and, and reach out to people who are teaching false doctrine and reach out to them with the gospel. Reach out to them in friendship and reach out to them in love. And, uh, and you know, the model I, I think for people who are wrong is Jesus. You know, he... He did spend time with folks, and uh, eventually he had to lower the boom. But, um, you know, it, it's within those relationships that you have uh, that you have the ability to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. It makes it a little bit more effective than using a bullhorn, although I'm not, I'm not opposed to a bullhorn. Sometimes that's the thing that, uh, the very tool that needs to be used, but not in this case. So the thing that was hard for me is that uh, the, the more I attend these conferences, the more they go from being that emergent guy, Tony Jones, to being Tony Jones, the guy that uh, I'm getting to know more and more. And, uh, and you know, my friend, Nadia Bowles-Weber, and, and my friend, Doug Padgett. It's, um, yeah, it, 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 it makes it more painful for me to uh, sit and listen to some of the things that are said. And, uh, and so I, I, 
let's just say that the this trip on some level uh was emotionally painful for me to endure so enough of that today's edition of fighting for the faith is a friday light yes we're doing another friday light and i apologize but uh, that's with my schedule being what it is and uh, the things that i have to pack into a day that's just the thing that has to happen so we're going to be listening to the second part of uh, Gearhard, uh, the late Gearhard 40s uh, lectures that he gave. The first one was on God's decision. The second one is entitled Our Decision. And like yesterday, the, there will be no commercial breaks. And uh, and uh, and just want to remind you before we listen to this uh, Gearhard 40 lecture, a couple things. Number one, the recording quality is not the best. And uh, uh, and uh, Gearhard 40, he has a very different way of, of lecturing. It's it's at a Norwegian. Lutheran pace, which is a completely different pace than what many of us are used to, and also need to remind you again that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and if you uh, uh, would like to partner with us financially, visit our website. Uh, You'll see a couple of options for you to financially partner with us. So without any further ado, here is Gerhard Forty and his lecture entitled Our Decision, part two of the the lecture that we played yesterday. After these devices have long since become outmoded, there'll probably be a, uh, part of the liturgical regalia of the pastor, you know, so that that's the way most liturgical regalia got started, you know. It used to have a pr- practical purpose, and then it got a sort of a religious sanction. So there'll probably be some motion where the pastor will start the service like this. <laughs> and there'll be a sort of a gold-plated microphone with a cord trailing off somewhere that <laughs> I want to begin today with Psalm 139. Uh, I want to talk about our favorite subject, I guess, us, <laughs> uh, to reflect on the question of our our decisions over against God's. Oh, I think I got this in the wrong pocket. I'll trip over it. Okay. Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou discernest my thoughts from afar. Thou searchest out my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou dost beset me behind and before, and layest thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, let only darkness cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee. Night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with thee. For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise thee, for thou art fearful and wonderful. Wonderful are thy works, thou knowest me right well. My frame is not hidden from thee. When I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth, thy eyes beheld my unformed substance. In thy book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are thy thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. O oh, that thou wouldst slay the wicked, O God! That men of blood would depart from me, men who maliciously defy thee, who lift themselves up against thee for evil. Do I not hate them that hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe them that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. An awful lot could be said about that song. The thing that I would like just briefly to call to your attention is that this is a psalm of a person of faith caught in the crucible of the majesty of God. And there is both fear and awe and terror. Uh, I think sometimes when we read these psalms, we make, the, the, uh, the, particularly this one, we make it sound a little bit too nice. This person knows that he can't escape from the hand of the Lord. And that's both wonderful and terrifying. The words, you know, uh, even before a word is on my tongue, Lord, thou knowest it altogether, thou beset me behind and before. The word there is the word for siege. <laughs> you lay siege to me like an army besieging a city. And the person is not exactly happy about that. He wants to escape. How shall I get away from you? 
Where shall I flee if I ascend to heaven? There you are. If I make my bed in shale, there you are. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, there you are. If I say, let the darkness cover me, doesn't matter. Because dark and light are all the same to you. Now that's awesome. It's wonderful. But it's also terrifying. And of course, if the fact is, if it's a fact that God has all these things in his hand, those last verses, which, you know, usually, <coughs> if this psalm were to be appointed to be read on Sunday morning, <laughs> those words about, oh, that thou wouldst slay the wicked, they would be left out. Notice in the lectionary, uh, when you read a psalm, the nasty verses are left out. Most everywhere. Interestingly enough, you know, it's interesting to look at the texts. Uh, usually they leave out the passages now that have to do with the wrath of God or uh, anything like that. As I was trying to say yesterday, we try to make God too nice. But in this psalm, the, 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 it follows quite naturally, I suppose. You see, the, the person says, well, God, if you've got everything in your hand, why don't you do something about the wicked? Why are you always on my case? Why don't you get on their case? Don't I hate them that hate thee? Don't I approve of all of the, uh, you know, I, I'm against the Contras and all the nasty people in the world. <laughs> Do I not hate them that hate thee? But he ends, of course, with prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Well, it's a story, it's a, it's a psalm about... us in the crucible of God's majesty and might. The one who holds everything in the palm of his hand. So we heard in our uh, devotion this morning, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without his will. We talked a bit yesterday about God's decision, God's predestination. That's both wonderful and awesome. And of course for us can be terrifying. Predestination means that your destiny is prior to you, before you, in God. And it now comes upon you in the means of grace. The question is not whether God is in charge. It's not whether God predestines. The question is how and who. And the answer, of course, comes from Luther's point of view, and certainly I think that's the, the, the biblical point of view, 
The answer to the problem of predestination comes precisely in the fact that God decides to come to you and say it. In baptism, in the means of grace, in the proclamation of the word. There is no other solution to the problem of God. Now, we'll talk more about that uh, as we go on. I want to talk today about our the question of our response, our reaction, our decisions. How do we actually respond to the to the thought that God elects? When we and or perhaps we should say the old Adam and Eve, when we get a sniff of the electing God, when we get wind of it, the first move is self-defense. First move is, tell me it's not so. After all, there must be some freedom. The old being starts to get worried because we know that our self, our kingdom, comes under radical attack. God is up to something. And our first move is self-defense to try to save at least a little bit of the self. Is there not at least some freedom? Don't we have something to say about it? Or perhaps we like to change the subject. What about all those others? Those who haven't heard or those who have heard and are baptized and fallen away. What about them? As if in failing uh, to defend ourselves, we're going to call upon the whole pagan world and all unbelievers to come to our defense. Well, what is going on when we do that? What is actually happening, happening to us when we get wind of God's word? Or what God is up to. I remember once speaking to a, a adult forum once. They asked me to come and speak on these matters. And we had a furious argument. <laughs> uh, and after it was all over, an old gentleman, I suppose, who wasn't too far from the grave, came shuffling up to me and he said, you know, I can't figure it out. Why is it that whenever we want to talk about the absolute unconditional mercy of God, everybody gets so mad? <laughs> that does raise an interesting question. What is happening to us when we hear about God? 
and such things as the divine election. When we raise questions like, well, what about all those others? Well, you might ask, what about them? What if God, as St. Paul put it in, in Romans, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Yeah, what if? Interesting question. Would you have any kicks coming? Luther and his argument with Erasmus, as we're, we're going to talk about, says... For that precisely is faith, to believe that he is just, who saves so few and damns so many. Isn't that enough to uh, curl your hair? But Luther says that precisely is faith. Because after all, God is God. And even Calvin, of course, had it right when he said, well, that's all God's affair. And God, after all, doesn't have to save anybody. <laughs> and there would be no flies on his justice. Nevertheless, the fact that he saves some is absolute sheer bounty, mercy, and grace. The point is, first of all, one has to kind of get that straight, but of course, that puts a big strain on us. Now I want to talk about this question in terms of the debate, the classical debate, between Luther and Erasmus about the bondage of the will. Erasmus wrote a book in response to Luther on the freedom of the will, or on free choice, because Luther was, of course, stirring up the, 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 the whole uh, world with his cause, his reformation. And it's interesting to note, of course, that when he went on the attack against the medieval church, the first thing that he went for was not even justification by faith or indulgences or the Pope or all of those things, which he could later say are mere trifles. <laughs> what he went for was the question of the will because that was the heart of the matter. How do we stand over against God? How does our will stack up with God's? 
who's in charge. Now, uh, and he made some rather audacious statements. He said, there is no such thing as free will. It's a mere name. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it is, you might say, as, perhaps as we would say today, an oxymoron. <laughs> Free will. Well, a will, in order to be a will, <laughs> is always willing something. And if it's always willing something, it can't stop. It can't stop itself. A will is a will that wills what it wills. Because it wills to will. And it will not stop. We don't have, well, we'll talk about that a little bit more. We don't have such a thing as a neutral gear. See, what Luther argued and what Erasmus tried to argue and what we always try to argue is that, well, we've got sort of a, we're sort of idling in neutral. And we can slip it into gear forward or reverse uh, as we want. Now what Luther was trying to say is, that's an impossible picture. Because we are, after all, creatures and not gods. The only one who can do that is God. The only one who really could be said to possess free will is God. God can do what he wants. But we are creatures. Now, Erasmus. Erasmus was a great man. He was a reformer, in a way. But he was a, a humanist reformer. And a Christian. In many ways, he was, uh, oh, I suppose if he were around today, he would be called an evangelical. <laughs> he was an evangelical Christian. He believed firmly in grace and even grace alone. Um he wasn't such a hot theologian. <laughs> That's why he was like evangelicals. <laughs> or one might call him that. I, I shouldn't have said that, I guess. But, uh, you know, he, 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 uh, he was ignorant of a lot of the early councils in the church uh, which held views contrary to his own. But he wasn't overly careful about that because he had a distaste for theological hair splitting. 
in that sense, he was like many of us as well. Now, there are two basic aspects to his argument, and that's why I think he's a pretty good spokesman for, for the kinds of things that one usually hears. Theologically, he wanted to be a champion of grace alone. However, he said, in a sense, you can't push that too far. Uh, you can't push grace alone to the extent that people will get the wrong idea. That is, to the extent that uh, it would endanger human responsibility. You, know, you can't say grace alone, well, what if people run amok? What then? So you, you have to kind of draw back on grace a little bit so that uh, just enough to make people responsible. The creature, after all, must be held responsible for sin and evil and in order for this to be possible, Erasmus thought, one must hold out for some degree of freedom, freedom of choice. If we are not to be considered puppets, it's the way we always used to, it's one, one of our defense mechanisms, we're not puppets, are we? See, we hear that, after all, a sparrow, not one sparrow falls to the ground without God's will. Immediately we respond, well, we're not puppets, are we? And if we're not puppets, then we must hold out for some ability to apply ourselves or turn away from those things that pertain to salvation. That's what Erasmus said. That is to say, if one is to make sense out of the Christian understanding of salvation, Christian life, the whole bit, one must hold out for at least some little bit of free choice even after the fall. That's the usual argument. Regardless of what one wants to say about grace, one must fall back on the logic of freedom and responsibility. There must be some teeny-weeny little bit, at least, of free choice, as I like to say, at the bottom of the ladder. You know, the ladder is the way to salvation, and we've fallen down. We haven't fallen all the way to the bottom. There's some little bit left. And that's the way one must interpret Scripture. And all of those passages, of course, that one might talk about, Erasmus liked to talk about, since God gave so many commandments and seems on so many occasions in the scriptures to exhort us to turn, to repent, and such things, it's only logical to assume that we must have some freedom to do so. Even if we can say, yes, well, we have a little bit of freedom and we can do it only with the help of grace. But nevertheless, there must be some little bit. That's the last line of defense. So whenever the scriptures speak about such things as predestination or election or like that psalm that we read, 
whenever the scriptures speak like that, statements which seem to contradict freedom of choice, and there are lots of them, and Paul, of course, has a catalog of them in Romans 9 uh, to 11, uh, passages like, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Or, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before they were born. Passages like that have to be quietly shuffled under the rug. <laughs> or, left out of the, the Sunday morning text, at least. Uh, or, as Erasmus said, they must be interpreted uh, figuratively so that one can tone them down and avoid the difficulties. So Erasmus came to the conclusion that, I think like most uh, people do, that statements about predestination, election, hardening Pharaoh's heart, uh, loving Jacob and hating Esau and all those sorts of things, passages that are embarrassing uh, indicate to us that, well, the scriptures just aren't very clear on these matters. In such cases, Erasmus says, it's better to assume that the scripture is simply unclear and where it is unclear to accept that as an indication that the good Lord doesn't, doesn't intend us to know anything more about it. In other words, when you come to a passage like that, just sort of forget it, <laughs> if you can. <clears throat> and Erasmus said, all in all, and if it had been... been had it not been that the church had expressed itself in these matters in behalf of free choice, he would prefer a kind of reverent skepticism. He found Luther's bold assertions to be very upsetting, dangerous, and uh, distasteful. But aside from the theological concerns, Erasmus, of course, found the practical concerns to be almost more important. Those are his exact words, almost more important, which indicates that they were more important for him. In effect, his complaint was that the doctrine of election and predestination is dangerous and impractical. What will happen to people's morals if they hear about such things. As we might say today, what will happen to the building program? Debates about such matters are better kept quiet. Keep it behind closed doors. Let the professors talk about it. <laughs> but don't let the common folk. Erasmus's words for the common folk were even not even that nice. Words. Don't let the common herd in on the secret. These are academic matters, best left to seminaries, and uh, not uh, don't let the secret leak out, because if people hear that God's grace is uh, uh, pre 
predestined and unconditional, maybe they'll say, well, then it doesn't matter. So it's best not to let the secret out. Interesting how you see all of the arguments uh, have already been made uh, and are is a pretty uh, common and old hat. So Erasmus said it would be better if the average layperson, as we like to say today, whenever anybody talks about the average layperson, I get a little bit suspicious <laughs> that somebody is trying to pull a fast one. <laughs> Uh, as use it as an excuse. It's better not to let the average layperson in on it, lest they get the wrong idea. Because if the word leaked out, how could people be persuaded of their responsibility for sin and salvation? How could they be held accountable? Who would strive to be good? Who would try to be a new creature? Who could be persuaded to love such a God with their whole heart? It's better to keep it under wraps. Some diseases, Erasmus said, that is to say, I suppose, the disease of legalism and moralism and all that sort of business, some diseases are better born than their cure. <laughs> better to suffer the disease than to try to cure it. In other words, in order to keep the common herd moral, it's better to bear the disease of moralism and free choice than to be cured of it. Translate that into, I suppose, more direct terms. How can one, one run a church, or for that matter, a world on grace? Interesting to note, this man is a humanist. Interesting to note the picture of humanity that emerges from this sort of argument. What are humans like? Since the fall, humans have at best just a little bit of freedom. Just enough to hold them accountable. Beyond that, much more. The humans, that is the common herd, and this is to quote Erasmus's own words, human beings are slow of mind, slothful, malicious, incurably bent on evil, weak, dull-witted, sensual, prone to unbelief, blasphemy, and so on and so on. The man is a humanist. <laughs> That's an interesting kind of point, see. Uh, what happens? Because as a matter of fact, one of the things that made Luther so mad was precisely that. You can't say that sort of thing about folks uh, in an interesting fashion. Uh, the average human cannot be trusted with any truth which would break into or upset the little moralistic world in which he or she lives. It's too dangerous to let grace loose in the world. Too dangerous. 
So the church would be put in the position of holding back on grace, doling it out in quantities just enough to keep people sufficiently moral because it's too dangerous to set them free. Now, what did Luther have to say about this? I think it's important when you're talking about humanity, the human self, to begin with what I think would, could only be called his positive starting point. Why did he get so mad at Erasmus? Well, he got mad at Erasmus for several reasons. Erasmus was a very famous man. Uh, I don't know how you could compare him to someone today, but he was kind of a, <clears throat> the, the celebrated person in the world. He was probably kind of a Johnny Carson of the <laughs> Renaissance, quoted all over the place, satirical uh, Johnny Carson isn't that good, but I mean, uh, a very famous person. Of course, one of the reasons why Luther got so angry was this famous man should lend his name to an argument for which Luther had put his life on the line, an argument about which he didn't really care a great deal. If the church hadn't said something about it, he would have preferred to remain a skeptic and let the issue lie. And Luther, of course, got hopping mad and said, Erasmus, for God's sake, if you don't care about it, stay out of it. Let it be. But also he got rather angry because of, uh, it's not enough. One of the reasons that we have trouble, I think, in reading something like The Bondage of the Will why the world has had trouble with it is because one fails to see that behind Luther's point of view is a rather positive understanding at least of what the redeemed creature can be and what they should be, a free being, captivated by the grace of God set loose on the world. His vision was that of a justified creature in Christ whom you wouldn't be afraid at all of, of turning loose on the world. And his understanding of what the human creature really is supposed to be. In other words, one usually fails, as we were talking about yesterday, to connect the argument with the right view of humanity or the right theological anthropology. Now, the mistake is, is, is understandable because it seems like Erasmus is the positive thinker. He's arguing for at least a little bit of 
freedom, staking out a defense. And Luther then is apparently forced to argue the negative. No, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a, as a free choice of the will, no freedom in the things that pertain to salvation. And Luther can argue mightily in that score, if you've ever read The Bondage of the Will. An interesting exercise to do so. Uh, uh, and I can do nothing but recommend it to you. Uh, now, Luther argues mightily that there is no such thing as, as the free choice of the will. And usually we get so appalled by these negations that we fail to see that they aren't made for their own sakes. It's not just a polemical overkill. Many people like to argue that, well, Luther exaggerated in his arguments. The negations or the no to Erasmus arises because of his positive point of view, the positive understanding of what can happen, what can happen to us by the grace of God. A vision of what being saved means. Luther gets mad at Erasmus because Erasmus is, after all, at bottom, the pessimist. When you say that, well, you better not let people get a hold of the grace of God because goodness knows what's going to happen then. That's pretty pessimistic. Erasmus is the gloomy pessimist that who's too pessimistic about both God's grace and humans and misses the whole point, Luther believes, of what the scriptures have finally to say. For Luther, Erasmus is the pessimist. He finds Erasmus' words, as he says, in different ways, in spite of their great eloquence, to be Christless, spiritless words, chillier than very ice. Or, as he put it in one less charitable instance, I thought it outrageous to convey material of so low a quality in the trappings of such rare eloquence. Like serving, using gold or silver dishes to serve garbage or dung. If you know Luther, you know that that's been cleaned up a bit. You see, the problem finally, when we try to defend ourselves by arguing for at least a little bit of freedom, the problem finally is, that's all you get. Just a little bit. And you'll never get any more. And the problem with a church that teaches such a point of view is that it will dole out grace in little bits just enough to keep people in line and nothing more. Beware. <laughs> I would say beware of someone who offers you a little bit of freedom. That's all you'll ever get. What is Luther's point of view? 
I think it could be most briefly characterized as a, as a view of the human creature, an anthropology that's based ultimately on the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Not a little bit, all of it. And all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Now that's not just a commandment. It is for Luther a basic understanding of what the creature is all about. Humans are intended, that is to say, to be lovers, to be committed as we put it today, passionate lovers of God and the neighbor with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that defines what a creature is and promises what the creature will one day, by the grace of God, be. That is to say, we are intended to be turned outward in love to God and the neighbor, intended to be lovers, to be with and for the other. Now that means that by nature, the will is in gear. The will is not free. It can't be, because it is supposed to be engaged. And it always will be engaged. The will is, in a sense, always bound. Perhaps the better word is captivated. You're always captivated by something. You're never neutral. You're always caught because that's what it means to be a creature. We're created that way. That's what we're for. Created ultimately to be bound to God and to one another in love. God works in us in that fashion. That is, we're made to love that means that we will love, come what may. We are not and cannot be neutral. We must love, we will love, if not God and the neighbor, then the only other candidate is ourselves. And that's the only possibility we have. Neutrality, free choice, that's why Luther said it, there is no such thing. It's an oxymoron. Neutrality or free choice is an impossibility from the start. We have no choice in the matter. 
because we're not we're not creators. We are creatures. So free will could not be a human characteristic, a human predicate at all. It's a divine name. <coughs> Luther put it, his most holy and awful name. And it's not merely a logical mistake to ascribe it to the creature. It is finally for Luther blasphemy. Blasphemy. A religious mistake. That's why I suppose one can begin to understand a bit. A bit. I, uh, I suppose the words that are the most quoted from the bondage of the will, usually quoted to show how crazy Luther must have been, <laughs> are those words to the effect that man's will is like a beast standing between two riders. If God rides, it wills and goes where God wills. If Satan rides, it wills and goes where Satan wills. And man does not have choice in the matter. The question is, who's in the saddle? And the battle is to see who is going to be in the saddle. So that the battle is ultimately, Luther could put it, see what we have to do with here is finally battle between God and Satan for the creature. It follows for Luther quite naturally from the starting point, therefore, that there is no such thing in this mighty battle as free choice as such. Now what lies behind this view is the faith that we can be, through the grace of God, recalled, made once again to be lovers, set free. We can't change ourselves, but we can be changed. Luther argues it's true. The will isn't, it, it's a mistake to call the will free, at least as far as God is concerned. We should rather say it is vertible. <laughs> that is to say, you can be changed. When God gets to you, or to use Luther's words, highly mystical words, one can be rapt to Christ with the sweetest rapture through the Holy Spirit. Interesting, you know, that just that remark, rapt to Christ with the sweetest rapture through the Holy Spirit. Everybody complains about the fact that, that Luther doesn't have a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know why the reason is? Because nobody ever reads the bondage of the will. 
because the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the bondage of the will go just hand in glove. Uh, and it is a very nature of the Christian, therefore, to make assertions in this matter. Because the Holy Spirit, as Luther put it, is no skeptic. So was a jibe at Erasmus, of course, who didn't like the Luther's assertions. The whole battle, in a way, was about assertions uh, to begin with. You know, Pope Leo, in one of his bulls, uh, <coughs> attacked Luther for the assertions that he made. One of them was, there is no such thing as free will. And Luther responded with a tract on, a uh, uh, on the assertions. And Erasmus responded by saying, well, you know, I don't think Christian theologians should really make such bold assertions. <laughs> You know, after all, uh, we should be more modest and, and nobody's right. And uh, I mean, 100%. Uh, so we should all have a little more modesty in these matters. And Luther responded, it is of the very nature of the Christian faith to make assertions in this matter because the Holy Spirit is no skeptic and the things he has written on our hearts are not doubts or opinions, but assertions sure and more certain than sense and life itself. Because he had an entirely different understanding of what's at stake. I mean, after all, if, uh, if I were to stand up and say, uh, uh, well, in my opinion, <laughs> uh, your sins are forgiven. Or you would say, if I were to say, I declare unto you the gracious forgiveness of all your sins, and you were to respond by saying, well, that's your opinion. <laughs> uh, of course, I could only say, no, that's not my opinion. If I were to give you my opinion, that would be something quite different, of course. <laughs> this happens to be God's. This happens to be God's word. And it's not an opinion. It is a flat-out assertion, surer than and more certain than sense and life itself. Now you can see from this point of view that it's simply impossible for Luther to speak like Erasmus does, to speak that way about the creature. Erasmus's humanism and all of our arguments are self-defense masks a deep and despairing pessimism. It's too little, far too little, to bargain for a little bit of freedom. So as supposedly to vindicate our moral responsibility and absolve God from evil at the same time. One ends, as Luther says, by speaking blasphemous nonsense about both God and his creature. One of my, my favorite passages is, is where Luther says, this is what we come to when we seek to measure God and make excuses for him by human reason, not reverencing the secrets of his majesty, 
but peering and probing into them with the result that we are overwhelmed by the glory of them. And instead of a single excuse, we vomit a thousand blasphemies. We forget ourselves and gabble like lunatics, speaking against both God and ourselves, while all the time we were intending in the greatness of our wisdom to plead both God's cause and our own. In other words, in Luther's view, you lose it all. Once you begin to bargain or argue for a little bit, you'll lose it all. And one ends by speaking against both God and the creature. Because the creature is God's. We are God's. And the aim is to set you free. And that has to be understood as God's intent. And from that point of view, one can begin to understand perhaps something about the nature of the bondage. What we don't see, the blindness, the difficulty we have in getting out from under in that little little uh, thing from Genesis uh, when Luther talks about these things that's what he speaks of as, as you notice as original sin itself the inability to see to catch the vision of what the creature that God intended really is supposed to be. Uh, and what the freedom and at the same time being captivated or bound to God is all about. Well, we'll talk a bit about that next time.